Hi, welcome back and thanks for joining us here today. I'm Jamie and I am a blues disciple. Now please join me for a little while to hear some excellent blues from a few of the masters of the blues. Blues Disciples is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and please note that earphones or earbuds will enhance your listening experience. And for your convenience, you can click on the playlist to expand its size for easier reading. Today, we'll hear from a very talented gentleman born in the Boston area in 1951 and who grew up with the love for the blues and, importantly, the talent and capabilities to allow him to perform with and work with some of the very greatest blues legends of all time. That gentleman is guitarist, producer, and entrepreneur Mr. Peter Malick. Peter started playing guitar early in life, and by his teens, he proved he was ready for an incredible journey into the heart of the blues. We caught up with Peter a few months back to learn more about his work and experiences with some key blues artists starting in the 1960s. And our focus today will be on the gentleman many blues musicologists consider to be the greatest blues pianist of all time. That gentleman is Mr. Otis Spann. I started out asking Peter about the guys he hung out with in high school. And I have a couple of good friends who also went to the same high school as I, who, you know, we've talked to Bob McGullin already, and Ron Levy also went to Brookline High. And we, we were just sort of this outlier, young Jewish kids blues community, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> Great. We discovered stuff together, and we loved it, and we connected to it, and took on a life of its own. That's neat. So I'm going to jump ahead a few years here to the spring of 1969 when Peter Malick had his first opportunity to record with Mr. Otis Spann, Mr. Johnny Young, Mr. Luther Georgia Boy Snake Johnson, and Mr. S.P. Leary in New York for early blues and movie legend Miss Victoria Spivey's Spivey Records. Peter Malick's guitar work on that album was excellent, and the album was titled the Everlasting Blues versus Otis Spann. I then asked Peter how the album had come about. So this all happened, you know, this is one week that I, I think it was maybe more than a week, maybe it might, might have been a couple of weeks that I played with Spann at the Cafe Agogo in Greenwich Village. And the, it was a quartet. It was uh, Spann, S.P. Larry, Johnny Young, who was quite a, a fascinating character himself. You know, the, the world's only blues mandolinist, and then myself. So when I got there, I think I went up to, maybe went up to Span's room. We all stayed at the Albert Hotel, which was kind of like the rock and roll hotel for rock and rollers who couldn't afford the Chelsea Hotel. And Victoria was sitting in there when I walked in, I guess the first time I went up to the hotel. And she was quite a character. I mean, I liken her to the blues version of Nora Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. It's exactly what she was. She was living in this this world that was, you know, like when she was this famous singer, which had been in the 30s. So it had been like 30 something years ago. But she was quite a character. And so she she was like, uh, you know what? You know what, Pete? We're going to make a record. We're going to make a record. And I was OK. And I, I didn't really you know the first time I met her. I really didn't know the whole thing. But I quickly learned more about her. So some days later. She was like, okay, we're going to meet tomorrow at noon. Here's the address. And the address was the NOLA Penthouse Studios, which was on, you know, the penthouse of this uh, midtown skyscraper. Uh, maybe not, wasn't a skyscraper, but it was a fairly tall building. And NOLA had an incredible history, too. There were a lot of, you know, the early candid label jazz records were, were uh, recorded there and they did a lot of really cool stuff there. They had, you know, at the time, uh, kind of the state of the art in recording was eight-track tape. Nola had a three-track tape, but she didn't want to spend the money on the three-track tape. So basically, we recorded that album straight to mono. It was like, recorded, it's done. And and so it was just really, we kind of winged it, you know, is what it was. And one of the things that happened, which sort of give you an idea of, you know, what about the times and so forth. So Spivy, Victoria, was walking through the studio and tripped over Luther, you know, Snake Johnson's guitar cord and broke the cord. So she was very upset about that. But anyway, there wasn't another guitar cord in the entire studio. So that's why some of the tracks on the record, Snake isn't playing guitar because he had no way to play guitar. 
And then at the end, she gave us all an, an envelope with $30 in it. We got $30 for the record. And that was it. <laughs> it was like, it was super fun, you know, but it, it was totally just like, okay, let's do this song. What do you think? Okay, fine. Let's do it. And then it was done. Now from that April 1969 recording session, here is Victoria Spivey, Otis Spann, Johnny Young, Luther Georgia Boy, Snake Johnson, Peter Malick, and S.P. Leary with Otis's I'm a Bad Boy. from that same session with the same players minus Johnny Young. Here is Victoria Spivey's You're Gonna Miss Me When I'm Gone. Oh, 
Johnny Young leads with his vocals with Otis Spann and S.P. Leary on Johnny Young's Let Me Ride Your Mute. Ladies and gentlemen, right now we are introducing the one and only Johnny Madeline playing one of the greatest Young. Let 
Also from that album is Luther Georgia Boy Snake Johnson leading with his vocals and Otis, Peter, and SP on Luther Johnson's You Know You Don't Love Me Baby.
Like my bike, like my bike, like my bike, like my bike ain't got no more. I guess early on, you had a phenomenal break to be able to wind up playing with, with these artists like Otis Spann and John Lee Hooker and Big Mama Thornton. That's phenomenal that you had that marvelous opportunity at such a young age. It really is. And I'll tell you how it started. There was this guy, or there still is this guy, but he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He had a little Mexican restaurant, which, by the way, at the time, which was whatever it was, 1968, there was no such thing as a Mexican restaurant in Boston, Massachusetts, or pretty much anywhere else on the East Coast. Anyway, his name was Doug Grossman, and he was a blues musician. They had a band called The Cloud, and he used to host everybody when they came to town. He had uh, a little house in Cambridge, and he had a basement where he had, you know, like a, a setup to play. And he'd invite Muddy's band over, and he'd invite um, he'd invite whoever was in town from Chicago, whoever it was. And evidently, what happened was that he arranged, or somehow it was arranged, for Otis to come is shortly after he left Muddy's band and play at this club that was called The Ark at the time. And and so he reached out to me to be the guitar player because Otis said, like, hey, can you put together a band for me? And so that's how that happened, which was really, you know, really fortuitous and, and just a really incredibly random thing that was a wonderful start to a lot of adventures. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, one of the artists that, that I saw that you played with, John Lee Hooker, I've heard so many people say he was impossible to back. How did you do it? You know something, I think that we actually had a really good feel for what he was doing. I think that, you know, a lot of the other backing bands that I've heard backing him want to push him into a 12-bar blues. That's not what he did, you know? That's not who he was. And so I, it was just a matter of really listening, quite frankly. I mean, that's really all you had to do, listening and just and just going with whatever he was doing. And he was just such a unique individual he was uh, phenomenal. I, I had this little band, and the drummer was this guy, Richard Ponty. And Richard was had one of the best blues feels that I ever heard in my life. I mean, he was, in a lot of ways, the clone of S.P. Leary. And I don't know how, how familiar you are of S.P.'s work specifically, but I worked with him when he was with Otis in New York City. And he just had just such an amazing feel, very unique feel very laid back, you know, he played with brushes a lot. And that sort of style was like perfect for backing up Hooker too, although I don't know if SP ever played behind Hooker, but you know, that was that was kind of the model that we were excited by and Richard really sort of started to learn about what SP was doing. So he was he played with Hooker and then uh, there was a bass player who also was from my high school, name is Ted Parkins, and he did those gigs too. That is amazing. To me Hooker, I he could have been a, an incredible jazz musician. Yeah. I mean, the guy was, he just, he had his own, he was in his own world there. Yeah, he really was. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of little anecdotes if you're interested. Please. Uh, so I, we played with him two or three times up in, um, it was called the Colonial Tavern on Young Street in Toronto. I don't believe it exists anymore, but it existed for a whole long time. It was mainly a jazz club. And one time we were in the middle of a set and he did like this eight minute version of I'm bad like Jesse James. Right. And he finished it. and He was like, well, uh, I'd like to do another little thing for you. It's called I'm bad like Al Capone. And we did the exact same song over again for another eight minutes. But it was Al Capone and not Jesse James. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. And that was Hooker. I mean, that was a different song to him. Yeah, that's um, he's amazing. Folks, almost exactly one year after Peter recorded with Otis Spann on that 1969 Spivey Records album, The Everlasting Blues versus Otis Spann, in April of 1970, under much different conditions, Peter recorded another album with Otis Spann, this time in Boston, and it would be Otis Spann's last recordings before he passed. Peter Malick produced that album and also lent his incredible guitar work to it. The title of that album is Otis Spann, Last Call, Live at the Boston Tea Party. And Mr. Spann's last album. 
Yeah. To me, it's uh, it's incredible. It's, I mean, you put it into perspective and realize that the guy was was sick. Yeah, I mean, he was like he was weeks away from when he passed. Yeah. So I mean, it's incredible that you you know that he was still knocking it out and playing as well as he played. I mean, that that that's phenomenal. How did you guys come together to decide to do that recording? And can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I had been in touch. You know, with Span at times, you know, a lot of times he wouldn't have a telephone. I'd spent the, the summer before in Chicago, mostly the whole summer with him and living in the apartment he had, which was like on, well, 4111 Greenwood Ave, South Greenwood Ave, which no longer exists. I think it's a vacant lot right now. And, and well, it should be because it wasn't exactly a luxurious apartment building. So I spent that summer with him. And the last time I was there was, I think, later in September in Chicago. And I was like, whoa, you know, the wind was coming in off the lake. And so anyway, I, I ended up not exactly going back to balmy Boston, but nevertheless, I came back home and did some other stuff. And sometime in the winter, Lucille had been in touch with me. And she said that Span had been sick. He'd been in the hospital, but he was out of the hospital now. And you know, what was going on? And could they come to Boston and do something? So the original Boston Tea Party, which was at 53 Berkeley Street, had moved into a bigger club right by Fenway Park. And there was this club called 53 Berkeley Street that was started up and they were trying to sort of emulate the early days of the Boston Tea Party. And the owner was having trouble getting licensing from the city of Boston. And But anyway, I got involved with them and we planned a gig for Span. And it was those three days that became the album. And I hadn't spoken to him at all. The old Boston Tea Party, there was two huge flights of stairs that would go up to where the, the old ballroom was. And so I was there on the, the afternoon of the gig. And, you know, I heard they got into town and I was at the club trying to get some stuff set up. And, and uh, they climbed up to the top of the stairs and I saw him and it was like, it was just such a shock. I mean, he was, you know, half of the weight that he'd been before. He had this huge clot on his forehead, which was something unrelated to, you know, he died of liver cancer. It was just, I mean, of course, it was wonderful to see him, but it was just so shocking to see him. And and so needless to say, for all of us, it was just an amazingly emotional gig. And I really wanted to, you know, his, his hands were weak. He obviously could still play. He could, you know, he's probably, you know, playing today. And in some way, I mean, that's this all he did. But I wanted to sort of, I guess, craft the set so that it stayed sort of low key so he didn't get lost. This was definitely about him. And so that was kind of the vibe of the record. We wanted him to have his showcase to, you know, to have his spotlight because it certainly appeared that it was not going to be long, you know, that he wasn't going to be around for very long. So what happened with the club was the night of the gig, I think like three or four hours before the gig, this is after they arrived, the owner came in, came to me, it's like, Boston won't give us a license to do it live. And so we were trying to scramble to figure out a way to do it. They finally, evidently the police said, all right, if you don't charge admission, you you can do it. And so that's what we did. I think the first night was Thursday, didn't charge admission. Friday, they didn't charge admission. Saturday, they closed them down. And I called Don Law, who was like the manager of the, the new Boston Tea Party, and told him what was going on. And he put together a set. He opened up a set so that he could perform and, and do the gig. Uh, and we did so. They did that one at the Boston Tea Party. I don't remember whether the recording if it was actually recorded at the Boston Tea Party, but it may have been. So Miss Lucille Spann led off that album with her vocals and was joined by Otis on piano, producer Peter Malik on guitar, Ted Parkins on bass, and Richard Ponte on drums with Lucille's and Otis's response to Otis's great friend, Muddy Waters' Country Boy. Here is Country Girl. Otis, what you say about getting me a little blues, huh? The kid did.
with us a very fine artist and guitar player plus he sings the blues he used to be Muddy Waters guitar player but now he's on his own better known as Luther Georgia boy Snake Johnson what you say huh
then I asked. So what did you think about Luther George, your boy, Snake Johnson? You know, Luther spent his last years of life or a decent amount of time in Boston. And the story behind that was that I had met Luther when he was like with Muddy's band. And, and Luther was a type of guy that like if you met him, he was your friend. You know, he, he accepted everybody. He liked everybody. But Luther had, um, had a problem with staying out of trouble, put it that way. And so at Span's funeral, Luther just got out of jail. Not anything violent or anything like that, but he just, just could, couldn't stay out of trouble, you know? And so we went to the funeral and so forth, and, and Luther was like, you know, I can't stay out of trouble here. It's like, could I come to Boston? And we were like, yeah. And so what we did was, I can't remember, I think we probably flew to Chicago, and, and basically that whole band I was telling you about, Richard Ponty, the drummer, Ted Parkins, a bass player, everybody came because everybody loves Span so much. And what we did to get back to Boston was uh, we got a, you know, at that time where it was a drive-away car. You get a car that needs to go from Chicago to Boston, and you get to drive it for free, but you pay for the gas, and, and basically you have a way to get home. And so we got this drive-away car, and it's a brand-new, huge Cadillac. So we piled into the car, and Luther's like, hey, Luther, you coming? Yeah, I'm coming. You know, he had a little, packed a little bag of a few things he had. And we were going back to Boston, and uh, he was like, listen, go by Muddy's house. He wanted Muddy to see him in the Cadillac, right? So we pulled up at Muddy's house, and we were honking and stuff, and Luther's going, Muddy, you know. And Muddy came out and saw him, and I think Muddy was probably not that impressed, but <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> well, he hit the road, and we drove to Boston, and that's where he spent the rest of his life, and, and did, did pretty well for himself. We had a regular band really built a fairly decent career for himself in Boston, stayed out of trouble. And here is Luther Johnson with a Muddy Waters classic, I Got My Mojo Working. Don't worry for you, man. 
know a lot of you are wondering tonight why Otis is not singing. Otis have a slight problem of what you call laryngitis. So you will have to overlook him tonight. I'll do my best to give you my best. What you say, huh? Now, Otis, Peter, Ted, and Richard perform Otis's Stomp with Span. Here, Lucille lends her heart and vocals with accompaniment from Otis, Peter, Ted, and Richard on I Wonder Why.
then I went back to Chicago with him and he had moved into an apartment that I think might have been a relation of his or maybe Lucille's. And he was sleeping on a couch on one side of the living room and I was sleeping on a couch on the other side of the living room. It was this huge apartment, you know, a bunch of people there. But anyway, you know, even at that, I mean, he was hardly able to sit up, but he'd say to me occasionally like, son, you you feel like playing? I was like, yeah, if you want to play, let's play. And and I'd bring him, he had a, an electric piano, a little electric piano, and I'd bring it over to him, sit him up, and uh, this is that's what he did. That's what he, he did until the very last moment. Before our last song, and on behalf of all of us blues disciples, I want to thank Mr. Peter Malik for the time he gave us and for his love of the blues and his many contributions in working with such an incredible group of blues men and women. Peter wrote a tribute to his friend, Mr. Otis Spann, and in 1998, when Peter teamed up with our friend and multi-Grammy-winning producer and drummer Tom Hambridge to record Peter's album, Wrong Side of My Life, Peter performed his tribute with his vocals and guitar joined by Benjamin Benmont Trench on piano and Tom Hambridge on drums. Now here is Peter Malik to introduce his Blues for Otis, and thank you all for listening. I did this release in 1998, and it was called Wrong Side of My Life, and that's why I wrote Blues for Otis, and that's one of the tracks we recorded there, but we ended up deciding to put it on the Last Call record, and it's interesting. It's still, you know, still, that track still gets a decent amount of play, which is kind of cool.
bottles just there Underneath that gray Chicago sky Mighty Waters was there Stood underneath that gray Chicago sky As we said our last farewells We could hear him